0: Welcome
1: back, rebels.
0: There's certain episodes that we do that I can't really hide my excitement and people take the piss out of me in the DMs and this is going to be one of those episodes. Um, I am a fan of Chris Ryan and this was like, you know, sometimes we talk to people and you just can't get the conversation out of your head afterwards and it just changes you. This is one of those episodes.
1: Yeah, I feel like it was the same for me as well. There's definitely certain things that he said where you kind of like it's interesting when you had these interviews where it's like you get little mind-blown moments but you're still within the interview and you're like oh my god I still need to keep this together and I can't wait to go and listen to this back just so I can kind of actually have that mind-blown moment again but then like fully digest it and I think yeah Chris is one of those people who is just he just blows your mind with everything he says I think he's done the research and he's just come up with stuff about the human race about you basically i think that's what probably what is it like because he's basically talking about the way that you do things and the way that everyone does stuff you're like oh fuck yeah that's that's so true
0: yeah because we all think that we're unique little snowflakes don't we and then when you break everything down into sort of human behavior there are these universal truths and when you look at hunter gatherers and the the dna our dna that is ingrained in us like these these the way that we're behaving the way that we've built everything around us like this everything is a result of our like genes and genetics and human behaviors yeah which is which is so crazy because we we like to think that we're in control and so much of what we do is led by things that we don't really have control over
1: we don't realise like how long the human race has been around for in terms of like a civilised, a culture that can talk to each other. And I think when we think of like, quote unquote, cavemen, they are just these stupid people who walk around like bashing each other on the head with sticks, being like, ooh, like they're, we kind of think of them as being stupid. Whereas actually, human race has been quite civilised and quite intelligent for a really, really long period of time. And I think this is something that when we are looking at our behaviours and why we do things and we're confused about stuff, actually just looking back to that kind of like huge period of time that humans have been around have been like actually if we just look at the way we used to do things then maybe we can answer some of the questions about why we're doing things now
0: yeah and i think so much of of everything in culture is is starting to go back to those ways like we're we're all sort of starting to discover like okay it's good to be in nature it's good to meditate and to sit and think with our thoughts And even when you think of the popularity of stuff like Tough Mudder and all of those like obstacle courses, it's almost like making things hard again because everything is so easy and it's so gifted to us that there's something primal within us that's like, I've really got to test myself and challenge ourselves because people get addicted to doing those type of, of pursuits. For us, I suppose we, we throw ourselves into our work and that's where we get those, those sort of tough challenges and stuff, but I can see for someone who's got like a really easy nine to five or there are, cause you often see it's like high powered CEOs and corporates and stuff that end up on those retreats, like putting themselves through hell. Like there's that thing called hell week where i mean it just sounds like the worst thing ever like it's literally they don't tell you when it's going to stop they wake you up in the middle of the night like just they they just put you through hell like it sells out instantly people are falling over themselves to put them through this this
1: stress i think that's it isn't it it's like we like stress is an interesting one as well because it's like most often when we think about stress in society we think about the horrible stresses in terms of like oh obviously it's happening at work i'm stressed i've got too much on there's all these things that i need to do and i haven't got time to do them and yeah that kind of stress whereas actually like putting yourself under stress to learn to get better to improve at stuff is one of the only ways to do it like if everything's easy you don't learn in the same way like your brain starts to develop when you're putting yourself under stress so I think like with that it's like well what people need to do is basically put themselves in stress they need to find situations where oh this is stressful like I'm really struggling doing this because as soon as you feel like you're learning but like you're struggling at the same time and you're like should I carry on like should I quit that's the time where like your brain's actually improving and it's like putting yourself into those stresses is a really important thing to do because that's going to allow you to get better to improve at what you're doing and yeah if you just sit there feeling comfortable the whole time like we say quite often when we do public speeches that growth and comfort can't coexist and I think this is the perfect example of that like if you feel comfortable if your day-to-day job is pretty easy or it's stressing you out in a way that's not improving you it's just kind of like hindering you then it's like okay well what ways can i add stress into my life in a positive way that's going to allow me to actually grow
0: i remember when we interviewed alex may hughes and she spoke about putting on her own exhibitions and i sort of carried that in the back of my head and currently i'm working on my own exhibition. And that's opening early September. So if you head to at davidspeeduk on Instagram, you'll get all of the details of when my show is coming up. If there's anyone London-based that would like to come and see it, then I'd love to see you there. But um, this show is like the most stressful thing I think I've ever done. Uh, I'm obviously (laughs) like massively overcomplicating it by in order to promote it, I'm putting out a thousand pieces of free artwork across the streets of London plus alongside painting 12 original works that are going to go up in this exhibition it is the most stressful period of my life and i am loving it slash hating it slash loving it it's it's everything you spoke about it's like it is so stressful this that my deadline is rapidly approaching and i've not finished everything yet and i've got all of the but i'm so happy doing it and and it's such an unknown as well. It's like I don't know whether I'm gonna sell any work. I don't know if anyone's gonna turn up. It's like all of these things. Um but I'm like I'm out of my comfort zone. I'm out, I've pushed myself out of my comfort zone. I've decided okay, I'm going to do a big thing. Um my so for example, my growth on Instagram has really slowed down, like as I track how many followers I go up. Um I've gone up a thousand followers this month, which uh is is really, really low for me. And that would normally stress me out, but the reason I've gone down is because I'm not producing as much content for Instagram, which is yeah. not keeping people engaged. It means means my numbers not going up, um, which would normally stress me out. But I'm obviously doing it for a reason. Um, and and one of the one of the things that really stuck out for me in this episode with Chris is the thoughts around success, um, mm. and that got me thinking of like, well, if it's a sellout show, then obviously that's a massive success. But then I was sort of thinking, well, but if it's not a sellout show, then I've done it and I've achieved it and I've put myself through all of this stress. And that, for me, is a success. And I think Chris has a, a great way of sort of it's sort of really self-reflective. When you think about the the people that he hangs around with and like his mates with Joe Rogan and all these like famous millionaire comedians and he lives a very different life to them. And that's because his path to success is not having a huge mansion and all of these possessions. He like lives in a van.
1: Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that we were talking about, um, kind of off mic before this, about kind of like who's got the better life, like Joe Rogan or Chris. And it's like, obviously their lives are very different. Like one person has his mansion and loads of money. The other person is living really minimally and is having a very much more simple life, I suppose. And you were like, oh, I I, I think I prefer to have a life like this. And it's like, I think that's the problem that most people do is they look at like a few people and then they'll be like, okay, well, that's the life I want. They don't actually stop and think, okay, well, what would actually my dream life be like? Like if I could set up anything, what would that look like? And I think it is really hard to detach from visualizing what other people have have, or do. And I think that's where Chris is really interesting because he's not just looking at someone and copying their route. He's thinking, okay, well, me personally, like what would be my dream life? like if I could set up any scenario the people that I would interact with like the relationships I would have the kind of food I would eat like even like getting that kind of basic with like what would this life look like like what kind of thing would I eat every day and would I actually like is and am I saying that just because I've seen someone on Instagram doing exactly that and I want to copy it or is it something that you've experienced before and then you want to be like okay I want I want some more of that and like we're talking about life here but even this is like setting up a business like working out where it is you want to be like what do you want your business to look like how do you want that to evolve like do you want it to be something that is oh I want a thousand employees I want to be working this specific skyscraper in Canary Wharf or something like that or do you want a small team of people around you or do you want to be on your own it's like don't look at other people and try and work out where it is you want to be like I remember being at an event and there was someone who'd never been done anything kind of on their own before in terms of business. Uh, and they were like, Oh, yeah, I want a company with a thousand people and this, basically just what I described. And I was like, Why do you want that? And I was like, What, what do you do currently? And it turns out currently she worked in a building with about a thousand staff. And it was like, Okay, well, this, you're only visioning what you've seen before. You don't, you haven't actually asked yourself what you want in terms of like how many people you want around you. Do you want to be managing a thousand people or? the reason you want to start this thing is to get away from that. Like, do you actually want a smaller team? Do you want just people you like around you? Do you want to be working on the kind of work you want to be working on? And I think as soon as you kind of start to break it down into those things, it's like, well, what do I actually need to do to achieve those?
0: And I think one of the key things was was when Chris was kind of Basically, describing how, not being weighed down by possessions, and I think I'm so obsessed with possessions, having come from like not having anything, to like I, I think that really affects you when you grow up not being able to afford much. When you get older, like like actually grabbing onto as much sort of stuff as you can. Like I remember my like my mum and dad telling me when um, so when I was I was adopted by my parents and I remember uh, and they've told me that when we moved house all of my toys got put into the moving van and I like had a meltdown and that was the idea of like my toys were being taken away from me because I for the first like couple of years of my life I'd not had anything I attached so much to these toys that I all of a sudden had when I went to my mum and dad because all of a sudden I've got now a family that that are giving me all of these things and I'm like these are amazing and looking at me as like a big grown-up adult now who still collects toys there's probably something there that that is so ingrained from even from childhood of like I'm scared of having my things taken away from me and and then it's it's crazy to think that all of these possessions that that you hold so much value to are actually weighing you down and then so then I got onto the romantic kick of well what if I was able to get rid of everything and live more like Chris does in a van without any possessions and just be be really minimal but like yeah as you as you say it's like working out what works for you and I think for me like I am like I do I I do like my things um and I do I do want to like travel more and I think that we like everyone says like their goal is I want to travel more and it's it's easier than we make it out to be so next year I'm just going to
1: do it more I think what's interesting is the fact that for you like you've almost like seen someone else's life and you're trying to mold your your life into that but like actually when you ask yourself what do you want you want to have a collection of toys and that's why like in your house you have a big collection of toys and all laid out because that's something you enjoy and I imagine that if you asked yourself what your dream future would look like it would be to have an even bigger room with all of the things that you want in there Yeah, fucking. because it's like that's what yeah exactly because it's like that's what you want and I think that's what we need to ask ourselves, it's like, what do we actually want? What, uh, it's not like what our role models... Because I think that's the problem. It's like we pick role models as closely to us as we can, but we're never going to find someone who is just the exact same version of us in the future. I think we always have to take small elements from different people rather than just putting, oh, well, Chris did this. I love Chris, which means I should do exactly that. And I think like we're all guilty to it. Like We all find someone that we aspire to be, And then we slowly mould our lives to be more like them instead of just asking like, instead of just asking ourselves, well, what do we want? Like, what would make me happy?
0: Yeah, we're all a work in progress. Don't beat yourself up. Everyone is still working it out. Um, I definitely am. Um, So should we get into this week's episode?
1: Yep, let's get into this week's episode with Dr. Chris Ryan.
0: Yes, Chris is a an author. He's written uh, the best-selling books Sex at Dawn and Civilised to Death. Uh, I very much recommend Civilised to Death. I thought it was a brilliant, well-researched, very thought-provoking book that I think you guys will enjoy. And uh, do let us know what you thought of this episode. Do let our guests know what you thought of this episode and let's get into it.
1: Hi, Chris. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Welcome to the show. How's it going?
2: Thanks. It's going well. I'm uh, sitting in a tiny little town in uh, Colorado called Crestone, which is uh, home to over 20 different uh, religious organizations. It's a a very strange and unique place. There are uh, Zen Buddhists here. We're at 8,000 feet with 14,000 foot mountains uh, towering above. And um, just a strange little town this the very wealthy woman decided she had a vision um and uh, she wanted to grant land to world religions to show Uh. that they could live together in peace this was 30 years ago and now there are zen buddhists and uh uh, Shinto and uh, Hindu and and all sorts of interesting people here. So it's like a tiny little redneck town with a bunch of monks walking around.
0: That's so crazy. And I think one of the the things that I find the most interesting about you is your your nomadic lifestyle, the the van life that you lead for part of the year. Um, do you do you think that that because you've done so much um, research into sort of hunter gatherers? do you think that's kind of a reaction to your work almost of like you've sort of realized that there's another way because living in a van is although it's becoming more popular and more talked about it's certainly like one of those fringe activities that that not a lot of people are doing but yet we find hugely intelligent people such as yourself that are are taking this like like getting rid of loads of possessions and clearing loads of junk out and just going on the road and living like quite different lives.
2: Yeah. I, I, there's definitely an association between the research that I've done and the way I live, but I kind of think that the, um, the connection goes the opposite way because I've been living this way my whole life. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed or or either before I was a teenager, 11, 12, 13 in there, I was obsessed with Native American cultures and the sort of um, you know, I I keyed in very quickly to the lack of materialism and the sort of the beauty of finding what you need in the environment rather than carrying it around with you all the time, you know, and and accumulating and um I remember I must have been 11 or 12 I told my mom I didn't want my bed anymore. I just wanted to sleep on the floor and I didn't want a pillow because this is this was really the way I thought that if if I was on an airplane that went down I would be I would miss my pillow if I had to sleep in the wilderness. <laughs> so I wanted to get accustomed to not having a pillow so there's one less thing to worry about if I found myself stranded somewhere or something. So it was very, you know, that way of life and that way of thinking appealed to me at a very early age. Um, And then I remember reading um, Thoreau's Walden, and uh, it was actually my dad's copy from when he was in college. And uh, I remember there was a line uh, that my dad had underlined when he was young, and it said, a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. And that really struck me um, that there are two ways of having wealth. One is to accumulate and the other is to pare down your needs. And um, so I, you know, when I left college, I hitchhiked to Alaska and, and was just, my whole thing was adventure. I just want experience. I don't need things. And in fact, things get in the way of experience. So um, I was very much keyed toward experience and spent the next, uh, you know, from when I got out of college, around 20. um, Well, I mean, still, I I don't own a house. Uh, I've owned my van. That's like the first vehicle I've ever owned. Um, I'm just not really interested in owning things. I'm interested in going places and having experiences.
1: And out of interest, what things do you own and do you find important to you? Because obviously if you kind of like minimize everything down, there must be certain things that you're like, this is like something I can't live without.
2: I wouldn't say there's anything I can't live without, but I would say I'm a bit of a gear junkie. Um, and the things that I really like are the things that, um, sort of open open opportunity with low yeah. expense. So, you know, I lived out of a backpack for till I was 40, really. Um and did a fair bit of camping and a lot of traveling. So, I was very interested in like, you know, the best backpack, the best tent, the best sleeping bags, um, you know, mini binoculars, uh, things you know, people used to like joke when I was in India, I, I would like always have the thing that we needed. Um, but I traveled very light, but I, I honed down my stuff. And so now like in the van, the van is just sort of like an old dude's backpack. As far as I'm concerned, it's like, you know, I've got everything I need. And I love that feeling when I was young, when I hitchhiked, I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska and back a couple of times. And, um, I just love that feeling like no matter what happens, it could start pissing down rain. Uh, whatever happens, I've got on my back what I need. I've got a you know a bottle of wine. I've got some nuts and salami. I've got a good sleeping bag. I've got a great tent. I'll be dry. I'll be comfortable. So that feeling of like um, I can confront whatever happens is something that gave me a lot of comfort. And still does in the van. It's just awesome. I mean, now I've got a fridge and a freezer and, you know, a six pack of cold beers and, a, you know, good music and LED lighting and a comfortable bed and, you know, some hammocks. And, uh, I, I even have a, a smoker <laughs> so Amazing. S- smoke up some steaks and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's sort of an expanded backpack, I guess. And, I, and also, yeah, so, obviously, I do podcasting. So I'm very, you know, I love my uh, MacBook Air. I love my microphones and my headphones. And, you know, I, I, uh, I'm I, not a, a non-materialist. I'm just very selective about the things I spend money on.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. Because I think like we're in a society where it's very easy to just spend money on things all the time. Whereas I think like a lot of what you were saying there was I can really kind of see myself in that and like having not like loads of things but enough that I get so much satisfaction out of if someone's like oh my god this is broken we need this and you're like I've got the exact thing that can sort this thing out and it's just so satisfying and I think that you always, always kind of build a level of status around your kind of self of being like I can solve problems and I think it's right. having the confidence to believe in yourself and be like no matter what the problem is I think I can solve it I think is something that. Is a really good trait in people and it's like that only comes from doing it again and again and again and being put in situations where you can help other people achieve those different things um and i think the yeah. idea of doing of having uh, op, the way you phrased it was opportunity at low expense i think that is a great way to think about anything that you purchase it's like how much opportunity is this going to give me it's like is this just something that i'm going to consume and it's going to make me look good today tomorrow next week or is this going to cause opportunity that could lead to something greater in the future?
2: Right, exactly. And, and also, you know, especially when you're thinking about it from a travel perspective where you have to carry stuff around, is this something that only has one function or is this something that can fulfill several functions? You know, so for example, uh, when I was backpacking, I always had a down vest. um, And then I, I had a little a little bag so I would stuff the vest into the bag and that's my pillow at night right and if it gets cold I pull it out and put it on and I'm warm it's like so it's not just one thing it sort of satisfies different functions like you know a Swiss army knife or something is you know the ideal form of that but I remember you know I mean to get uh, more general about this I feel like in life there are basically two currencies that we have um uh, Access to one is money, of course, and the other is time and there 's a the fundamental difference is you can always get more money, but you 'll never get more time so I feel like we we need to be very careful about how we spend our time and um, prioritize that and most jobs are just selling your time way too cheaply because time is the precious. Resource, money is replaceable, you know, and so I feel like that's a fundamental sort of insight that I had at a very young age um, that sort of determined the you know the course of my life.
1: And on that note, there, it's like I think there's so many people who don't value time enough, and they they put too much weight on the money. What do you think it is that makes people that way, and how can we kind of change that mindset?
2: Well, I think a big problem is that we live in denial of our own mortality. You know, we uh, hide death uh, as much as possible. We, you know, we don't kill the animals that we eat. We don't even acknowledge that they are animals. Uh, you know, they are it's a burger. It's not ground up cow flesh, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And and you know then vegans and vegetarians are in denial of the fact that uh, what they're eating is grown with blood and bone meal, and that you know entire ecosystems are destroyed in order to plant soy crops and you know whatever else the kale and whatever else they're eating. So it's it's just layer upon layer of denial of mortality, and that results in the sense that our time is unlimited and so we undervalue it because we assume it's unlimited we're all going to live forever you know um so i i think that there's it all kind of fits into uh a, a mindset that encourages us to undervalue our time so that we'll sell it for 12 bucks an hour you know um and it's interesting just before we we came online here i was uh, reading an article about how there are like a record number of people are quitting their jobs, um, you know, in largely, I think, because of COVID, they don't want to go back to the office. They're, you know, worried. Yeah. And also they've spent the last year at home with their families doing what they want to do. And it's real hard to give that up once you get used to it. Um, and, you know, at least in the United States, there's uh you know, way more jobs than there are people who want to take them. And it's not a labor shortage. It's a shortage of people willing to sell their time for 12, 13 bucks an hour.
0: Yeah, I I think I'm changing my attitude gradually. Um, I've definitely sort of been caught up in the rat race before. I think Adam has as well. I think we both have. Um, But like I I realized recently that I'm I'm working on a solo show at the moment. And I realized if I sell out this show, then that means i can relax for 6 months and that was a really beautiful feeling i'm almost i'm almost buying that time i think that it's it's so funny so with with this interview normally i get i like ask a guest if they want to come on and then i have like a month normally to like Deep dive, research them, read all their books and all of that. And um, I, I messaged you the other day, and you were like, "I've got Wi-Fi till Wednesday." And I was like, "Okay, shit. Well, we'll do it. We'll do it on Wednesday then." So it's it's been a while since I since I read "Civilized to Death," but um, there's there's a, a part in that the way you say we live in zoos of our own making. And just like oh, the shivers that that sends down my spine. Even just saying it now, we live in zoos of our own making. And uh, that's that's something from that book that, that really really stuck with me. And you talk in there about the the evidence of of the people being happier when they have less things and they are more altruistic and they are they are giving things away as opposed to the the scarcity mindset and the hoarding and the clutching and keeping like this is mine and you can't have it.
2: Yeah, and we see evidence for that uh in various places. It's it's consistent wherever you look. Um you know, the consistently researchers find that the the best way to um feel better if you're down is to help someone else. You know, which seems counterintuitive, right? You're the one who's suffering. But you go out and you help other people, you feel better. You feel better about yourself, and you feel more integrated into a community, right? You you feel the gratitude of the people you're helping. You feel a need being met. You know there are some very deep instinctive um, triggers that that are activated when we help other people, um, and you know the the research that I've done is largely about tracing these things back to their origins and of course we evolved in highly interdependent groups small groups from 40 to 120 people you know generally Um, and people don't understand that anatomically modern human beings who look like us the same brain structure and capacity or, or larger actually but us 300,000 years we've been around, us, people like us, who we could talk to, who, who um, you know have dreams and sense of humor and tell stories and all this stuff. Um, and so 300,000 years we've been around and only the last few thousand years, just a sliver of our time, have we been living in civilizations. So in order to understand our nature, we don't need to look at civilizations. We don't need to look at ancient Rome. We need to look at that giant 99 percent of the time that we've been around. Um, So that's why I'm fascinated with hunter-gatherers because I think it offers a far more accurate insight into what sort of animal we are, what our needs are, what our frustrations are. And um, yeah, you find that that survival in hunter-gatherers depends upon being part of this group, taking care of each other. Sharing resources. Nobody hoards resources in hunter gatherers. If I go out and shoot a deer and I come home and say, okay, I got this deer, but it's just for me and my woman and our kids, which is the mainstream view of human evolution, this is what you'll read in Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins. That's total nonsense. That's not at all how hunter gatherers act toward one another. And in fact, it would break down the hunter-gatherer society. Imagine if you're living with people and they're hungry and you've got a dead deer and you're not going to share it with them. I mean, are you kidding me? That's not going to work. So I think it's very important that uh, we understand that mutual dependence and um, cooperation is probably the deepest uh, at the heart of humanity. And, What we're being encouraged to do now is to hoard, have a scarcity mindset, keep things for ourselves, not share, live alone. This is totally unnatural for our species. So it's no wonder that suicide rates are the highest they've ever been. Depression's the highest it's ever been. Anxiety disorders are the highest they've ever been. Because we're living in ways that are inhuman. In Civilized to Death and also in Sex at Dawn, the the first book, that I wrote about with my wife about 10 years ago, Um, we write about um, Rebecca Solnit. She wrote a book called Paradise Built in Hell, where she interviewed disaster sociologists who study how people behave in the wake of a disaster, whether it be a war or a tsunami or earthquakes. And what she found, and what those sociologists found, is that The people who survive these events look back on those days as the best days of their lives. The days when their house fell down, when there was, you know, when when people are dying and suffering, those were the best days of their lives because they felt meaningful. They were helping one another. They helped strangers, strangers helped them. That scratches a very deeply human itch, I think.
1: That's really interesting because as you're saying that obviously it's definitely not a disaster but to some people it might be. It just reminds me um, being at university and like we as having a power cut so there was like no power for the whole evening and just like being sat together in a room with like candles of just like six of us just having some like really good conversations. As you were talking about that there I was like actually yeah that is one of my favorite memories of uni and that is just sat on a staircase with a couple of candles having a chat but I think it obviously is that human connection it's like on a really deep level where everything else is shut off there's no distractions of any form because technology and electricity is gone which i feel like is generally these days what takes a lot of that attention takes a lot that like detaches you from society
0: but then i bet the next day you didn't then go let's turn all the lights off yeah exactly it's so funny isn't it
2: like when the lights come back on i don't don't know if you guys feel this but i always feel a like, okay, on one level, relief, because the food in the freezer is not going to go to waste and all. But there's always a sense of disappointment as well. Like, really? Oh, back to normal mm. already? Shit, that was that was too brief. Yeah, and that I think that's one of the reasons that I have spent so much time traveling um, to places where that's more of a normal way of living. You know, places where modernity hasn't penetrated so much especially when when i was young when i first started traveling uh it was the the mid 80s uh there was no internet there was no texting your mom from you know mumbai it was far away it was it was so far away that i think it's difficult for young people to imagine how that was and i know you know everyone You know, who's 60 is saying throughout history has said, you kids don't know what it was like. Um, (laughs) But really, like, I was in India the first time. I I remember being in Kashmir in this place called Srinagar, and I had this little shortwave radio. And um, I would like listen to the shortwave radio. And I don't even know if you guys know what shortwave radios are, but they pick up signals from all over the world. And I would pick up the BBC. And they were like reading cricket scores and like, I don't even understand cricket. I don't give a shit about cricket. But just listening to someone speaking English, um, you know, with a familiar accent was comforting. And it was like, well, if there if a nuclear bomb went off, this guy would tell me because otherwise I wouldn't know. And in fact, that's when Chernobyl uh, blew up and all that shit happened. I was in India. That was my first time in India then. Um, but just that, that, like, if I would send a letter to my girlfriend, it took a month to get to her and then she'd write a letter to me and it would take another month to get back to me. So I had to tell her like, okay, in two months, I think I'm going to be in Varanasi. So send the letter there, you know, it was just a whole different thing. And now people are sitting in cafes in Thailand, you know, texting their boyfriend. It's like, it's totally different.
0: Um, one of my favorite podcasts, I don't know if you're aware of it, is called Fall of Civilizations. And uh it's a guy called uh Paul Cooper and he go, he goes through uh he's done like Rome and the Aztecs and the Mayans and he goes through all of these different uh and it's like hugely researched, they're really long shows and they're just fascinating. Like I I think I mean you probably know a lot of it already, but I think you might find it interesting. I mean, we're living in the first ever sort of global civilization and the internet has brought us all together. Um but the self confidence that we all have collectively that this is going to be the one civilization that doesn't topple, even though every single civilization before us has, um, seems sort of yeah a little bit arrogant. But with what you were saying about that's why you go back to look at the hunter gatherers. I think the the fun part for me there is that, and we we've spoke we spoke about this with Rebecca Seal when by by all accounts hunter gatherers would kill a, kill whatever their their dinner for that night is going to be and then because they don't have refrigeration there's no point that they go and kill another thing because that would be an exp exped- they would be expending energy on something that's that's going to then sit and rot that no one's going to eat so they would then be creative they would sing and tell stories and do cave paintings or whatever it might be and I think, I mean, you've you've obviously got loads of friends who are creatives, like stand-up comedians and singers, and like a whole like swathe of of uh, really interesting people. But yet we're told, I feel that we're told that that this is not a, a serious career option. That choosing the the path of the creative is is sort of weird or kooky or strange. When yet it's it's one of our like most root like deep rooted things. I feel like when I my work is play, it's like I'm I'm fucking around doing what I love to do. And that that is work. That's what I'm getting paid for.
2: Yeah, well, you know, most hunter-gatherer languages don't have a word for work. Um so it's complicated when anthropologists go and try to study, you know, how much time they spend working the the people can't define it because work is, by definition, doing something you would rather not do, right? Um, hunter gatherers that concept doesn't really exist. I mean, they're the things they do that anthropologists call work, we call vacation hunting, fishing, you know, yeah. walking around, picnicking, telling stories with the kids. You know, it's like This notion, um, you know, and this relates back to what we were saying earlier about undervaluing our time. I think the so-called work ethic um, is one of the biggest um, chunks of bullshit that's ever been swallowed by our species. This idea that there's dignity in work. What does that mean? There's dignity in being coerced into Spending your time doing something you don't want to do—where's the dignity in that? That's a, that's a slavery uh, mentality, you know. Um, we need
0: play ethic.
2: Yeah, I mean, life is play, right? It life is at its best. It's it's fun, and there's a reason that it's fun. There's a reason these things are fun for us. There's a reason, for example, um, you know, people love golf. Why do they love golf? Because they're in nature, you know. They think it's nature anyway. And it replicates the Pleistocene environment of the savanna, the open savanna with clumps of trees and water and, you know, undulating hills. This is like the ideal human evolutionary environment. It it resonates very deeply with us. Um, but I think that, you know, there's a great essay that I always recommend to people called The Original Affluent Society by uh, Marshall Salins, S-A-H-L-A-N-S. Uh, it's available online, and it's a pivotal paper. It was published, uh, I think, in the late 70s, maybe mid-70s. Um, anyway, he was an anthropologist who uh, studied hunter-gatherers, and he was the first person that I know of in the academic world to sort of really outline how hunter gatherers have nothing in material terms, but if we change the metric and we look at things that are actually valuable apart from material items, like free time, satisfying relationships, personal autonomy, um, women having autonomy and respect within the society, uh, nutrition, sleep, you know, these things that, that we're starting to value, we're starting to understand that are actually essential to to living uh, a decent life. If you look at those matrices and, and measure the wealth of a society in those terms, you find that hunter-gatherers are way better off than we are. Uh, even the hunter-gatherers that exist today, which are on the most undervalued land the most remote corners of the Amazon, the deserts of Africa, land nobody else bothered to steal at this point. They still uh, manage to live satisfying lives working, in scare quotes, 12 to 16 hours a uh, a week. It's ridiculous. So, And again, as I said, that work is mostly things that we consider to be satisfying. Um, so yeah, it's, it's this idea that you you should spend 50, 60 hours a week in an office, in a cubicle under fluorescent lighting, uh, like, what are we talking about? This is totally ridiculous. If you took a chimpanzee and put it in, in that environment, it would kill itself. Um, so there's, you know, no surprise to the fact that people who are convinced that this is the way to spend their lives are miserable.
0: When you uh, talk to your friends who are creatives, um, do you see any kind of uh, similar threads that link them all together? Um, For me, I think so much of it is um, almost like a delayed, delayed gratification of the creatives are the ones who are willing to stick it out through that rough patch when no one quite believes in you and thinks what you're doing is all a bit odd and quirky. And then gradually you sort of start to win people over, but, but yeah, what are some of the the similar traits that you've noticed in the, the people that are really successful?
2: Well, <clears throat> you know, it, it's interesting how we can frame things in different ways because while well, you were asking that question, I was thinking there's like, um, uh, stubbornness, uh, to a lot of these people, because as you say, you know, like you mentioned comedians and, and any comedian will tell you before you start to have fun, you need to bomb and bomb and bomb and bomb. You need to stand up on stage and be humiliated in public over and over and over again. Um. So what kind of person gets through that? You know, what kind of person doesn't just throw down the mic and say, fuck this. I'm, I'm going back to the seven 11, you know, <laughs> like this is crazy. So there's a a stubbornness and a persistence, but then there's also I think and maybe this is just another way of saying the same thing, there's an inability to not do it. There's like uh I can't fucking work in the factory. I just can't do that. Yeah. You know? Um and so they find another way. And uh so you know, maybe it's it's an incompetence in a way. It's a, it's an inability to fit into that structure. It's an inability to, like, you know, be the good student in high school who does his or her homework and, you know, gets into a good college and, you know, checks all the boxes and goes to med school and, you know, whatever. And this is not to devalue doctors, obviously but it's just a different kind of personality. You can't follow the rules. You can't fit into the system. Um, Yeah. I remember when I had this idea to write sex at dawn and I was talking to a friend of mine who worked in publishing and I was like, you know, what do you think? Does, you know, do you think this idea has any traction? Do you think anyone would publish it? And, um, and he was naysaying. And uh, he said, he said, you know, in publishing, what we say is you should never write a book unless you absolutely have to. And, uh, you know, I think that applies to just about everything, right? If you want to be a musician, you want to be a comedian, you want to be a writer, you want to be any sort of creative, on some level, you need to feel a sense of urgency around it. And you're willing to give up the house in the suburbs. You're willing to give up you know, in my case, like, I never wanted to have kids. Um, so that freed me up to be poor and, um, you know, unstable and f- live in one country and then another country and change and do all that. If someone does want to have kids, that I think makes it a lot harder. You know, if mm-hmm. you want, unless your partner has a steady job and they're going to pay the bills, because I do mm-hmm. think that part of you know, being a creative rebel is keeping your expenses as low as possible so that you're not beholden to anyone um, yeah. and you know, you're you not paying a mortgage or or you're not in a hole that you need to dig out of financially.
1: Taking, uh, taking it back that, to something you just said about uh, when it comes to like when you write a book, it's something that kind of has to come out of you. I was actually listening to something recently by um, a guy called Naval and he was like, when it comes to like listening to or reading books – only consume something that someone had to write basically don't ever read a book that someone wrote mm. to make money from because then you know that maybe the actual kind of like premise of it is, isn't going to be as useful as maybe you think it could be like there's maybe some like different kind of motive in there rather than someone who's just genuinely passionate about something who wants to maybe especially if it's like like nonfiction give the facts that need to be given rather than ones that are maybe just to sell some copies
2: yeah, I, I do think the motivation changes the content for sure um yeah i I think that makes sense and another thing i i think about often is somebody said you should always write posthumously um so write as if you're already dead right just say the fucking Mm -hmm. truth and it doesn't matter how people react to it it doesn't matter how many people buy the book or if your agent thinks that's a mistake or your editor is, is uncomfortable about that. It's like, just fucking say it because you need to say it. And ultimately the response doesn't matter because 20, 30 years you're gone, 50 years, whatever, you know, whatever you're looking at. Um, And the, yeah. the you know, hopefully the message is still out there. So if you're going to put a message in a bottle, say the truth, you know,
1: Yeah, I think that's so powerful as well, because you can take that from just being writing to any form of creative expression. Like, don't do it just to try and make money from it. Do it like you're already dead. I think that is such a brilliant way to frame it. Like, Because it's like you're doing actually what you want to do rather than thinking about, oh, this is just what's going to
2: please you. And you can take it further than that into relationships, right? How many people enter into a relationship behind a mask? Um, You know, not being themselves, not being honest about what they need and who they are and what they want in life because they're just trying to please this other person so, you know, they can get laid or be loved. But when somebody loves you without knowing you because you haven't exposed yourself, you haven't been vulnerable. Mm. And and then Mm. you're lonely because you know, she doesn't really love you because she doesn't really know you. And whose fault is that? It's your fault because you fucking lied, you know? so the. The older I get, the more apparent it is to me that um, trying to shape ourselves to the expectations of other people is always a mistake.
1: And why do you think that's such a burden that we
2: have? Well, I think because, as we were saying earlier, we live in a society that puts us into these deeply unnatural and unsatisfying situations, right? More people live alone right now than have ever lived alone in the history of our species. Right, in absolute numbers and as a percentage, it's it's deeply unnatural to live alone. It's deeply unnatural to you know look on your phone and communicate with your friends through this machine in your hand. Um, so much of our life, of our lives, is um, sort of just fractured and and isolated and separated from one another. Um, that we're desperate for connection. And so we make concessions. We, we um, you know, compromise in ways that we shouldn't compromise because we're desperate for connection. And whether we see that in terms of sexuality or intimacy, you know, I think it's all the same thing. There was a, a movie years ago that won the Oscar called Crash. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And the premise oh, that, was yeah. that in Los Angeles, people are so isolated in their cars that they actually run into each other just so that they'll get out of the cars and interact with one another right um and I kind of feel like that's that's a metaphor for where we are
0: i i I mean that makes me think about your your sort of body of work where you kind of i feel like with your stuff you 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 look at accepted truths um and and question them at what point do you, like have you always because it sounds like you have like ever since you were a kid have you always kind of questioned the the sort of norm and the status quo and the the dog food that we're being fed um because it seems like when i read your your stuff it's like here's what i thought was the case and there's all this evidence that that shows that what we were thinking was absolutely nonsense
2: yeah, I've always had a contrarian kind of stance, I think. Um, yeah, and it, it's a chicken egg situation, right? I'm not sure whether the sort of skepticism came first or, you know, I mentioned that I was obsessed with Native American cultures as a kid. And I mean, I was, when I say obsessed, I'm not exaggerating. I came home from school when I was 11 years old, took off my clothes, put on a loincloth and wore the loincloth till I had to go to school the next day. I sewed my own moccasins. I had a wigwam in the backyard. I tanned rabbit hides. And this was in like suburban Pittsburgh. Right. Um, You know, and my parents were like professional teachers and, you know, writers like they weren't hunters. It was all just very weird. I had red hair and I'd walk around with feathers in my hair and stuff. Um, It was pretty extreme. So, I, I think that you know when I when I read about um, these societies and the way they interacted with one another and and the way they perceived of the natural world, it just seemed right to me. And my own society seemed very wrong. Um, so from ten or eleven, I looked at American culture and I was like, I don't get it. I don't understand why you people value the things you value and, um, you know, have no respect for the natural world or your own time or your own dignity. And, um, yeah, I just, I've always felt like an outsider and, you know, and then after college, when I started, um, using or during college I I used psychedelics a fair bit and that sort of reinforced that sense of like wow like things aren't what we're we've been told you know and then uh travel international travel was another way of exploring like okay you know what just you guys know the guy Joseph Campbell mythologist who wrote a hero with a thousand faces and and other books Mm. the power of myth he has a Term called detribalization, which I've always found very powerful. That um, part of the process of psychological maturation is first recognizing that each of us is born into a tribe, right? And what is that tribe? What are the belief structures of that tribe? What what are how does the language of that tribe influence our perception of the world? And then, to the extent possible de-tribalize yourself get outside of the tribe recognize other tribes and how they think and and how arbitrary Mm. these filters are that we use these lenses through which we view the world um so that was the project of my youth i think and um and and i think you're right i think i've always sort of felt that like ah this tribe is weird i'm bored into the wrong century the wrong society. and I think a lot of people feel that. And and I think that's what motivates my writing probably more than anything else is this sense that people feel alienation and anxiety and uh, a, a grief, and they don't know where it comes from. And so m- many of them blame themselves. And mm-hmm. my feeling is like, fuck that's a lot of unnecessary suffering because it's not your fault uh, you know you you brought up the line about we live in a zoo of our own creation it's a shitty zoo that we live in right now right it's not the san diego zoo it's the fucking calcutta zoo it's cubicles yeah. and fluorescent lighting and artificial food you know manufactured in factories it's not uh, a zoo that replicates the natural environment from which our species comes, and we could do it we're, ne- we're never going to go back to nature, we're never going to go back to being hunter-gatherers, absent you know massive uh, cataclysm, mm. but we can live in an artificial world that's built as a reflection of the natural world in which our species evolved, and we can be much happier and have much more meaningful lives.
1: So, someone listening to this maybe kind of feeling a bit triggered now and being like, "I'm an outsider." This is you're saying things that sound like well, the way that I feel. What are your recommendations and advice to people who feel like that?
2: Well, I think first of all, I think the first step is just recognizing that it's not your fault, right? That it's not you who is. Um, I think the alienation is is a result of a of an unhealthy relationship between the individual and the society or the world in which they live. Right. And so what I'm trying to convey to people is the world is fucked up, right? So the mismatch isn't necessarily because there's something wrong with you. The mismatch is, you know, if you're unhappy at work, it's probably because your work sucks. That work environment is humiliating and degrading and boring That's why you don't like it. Not that you're not a good worker, right? It's that they're asking you to do something that you should never have to do. Um, So I think that's the first step is to take back some sense of agency and dignity. And like the problem isn't me, the problem's them. Um, And, you know, the two books that I've published are both uh, attempts to sort of educate the reader around that, around why what you're being asked to do is unnatural um, and and therefore results in anxiety and and sadness and grief. Um, But then beyond that, I think, um, you know, look for other people who feel the same way and try to support them and form networks and communities uh, that replicate in whatever limited ways are possible the world in which our species evolved so at the beginning of our conversation i mentioned i'm in this little town in the middle of nowhere well the reason i'm here is a bunch of friends have gotten together and we're all buying land here and where the plan is we're going to take care of each other so one friend is an auto mechanic he's going to do the you know mechanical stuff and his wife loves raising chickens so they've got the eggs and We're talking to people about aquaculture, aquaponics, um, you know, and a greenhouse. And it's so cool because people listen to my podcast, hear me talk about this. And I get emails all the time saying, hey, I want to come help you build a greenhouse. I'm a regenerative farmer. I want to come and, you know, help you decide what to plant. And, you know, I'm a carpenter. I want to help you build your house. And. This other this guy in, in Oakland is like, hey, I've got a mill, a lumber mill. Let me send you a truckload of lumber, you know. So even in our modern world, it's possible to connect with people and help each other and, um, you know, replicate in whatever way we can the world that works for us.
1: I think so much of that just talks about the power of podcast. I think it's like you put out your voice, your message, your beliefs to the world, and then the people who believe in that and agree with that come along for the ride. And I think that's why I think I advocate for every single person to start a podcast because I think, although yeah. well, I feel like in the past few years, almost everyone has, <laughs> but like there's so much there's so much in that in terms of what you might get out of that as a reward. You might find the people that you've been looking for and I think that's another way, I suppose, where the internet is helping things in a way, because it's allowing those communities to actually find each other. Whereas previously, I suppose, if you were the odd one out in your small town, you're kind of stuck as being the odd one out in your small town. Uh, whereas I suppose now there is a lot more opportunity to, to find your people.
2: And yeah, well, my, my partner, Anya Katz, she tells the story of how, you know, she sort of, tried living a conventional life. She was married and had a house and she was a food blogger. And, you know, she was just sort of like doing everything right, but she was miserable. And, um, she had what she calls the dark night of the soul. She, she was physically ill and unhappy and, um, just went through a very sort of stormy time in her late twenties, as I think a lot of people do in their late twenties. And, um, she came out on the other side and said, well, OK, I I know who I am now, but I, I I don't know how to find my community of people who are like me, you know, people who've given up all that stuff and are trying to live a more authentic life. So she said, fuck it, I'll start a podcast so they can find me. I can't find them, but I'll shine this light and they can find me. And it's worked." Her podcast is called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. And uh meant semi-ironically. And it's it's worked out. And now she's got, you know, thousands of people who listen to her podcast and, and she she forms these uh WhatsApp chat groups so people can meet each other. And that's something I do as well, not the WhatsApp thing, but when I'm cruising around in the van, I'll say, Okay, next week we're gonna be in Boise, Idaho at 7 PM at this beer house and you know, come on down. And people drive from hundreds of miles away, not to meet me, but to meet each other, right? And because yeah. any you know, we're all the same kind of people, you know. And so that's something I find really gratifying is sort of creating a uh you know, a center, a force field or a grain of sand in the oyster or something that gives people a, a place to come and meet each other, whether it's online. Um, or in the physical world.
0: Um, When I heard you speak about having kids, that was so huge for me because it was at a time where me and my girlfriend were at that stage of like, should we have kids and what are we doing with our lives? And I think that the accepted kind of story that we were supposed to follow is like, it's part, that's part of the narrative. And then when I heard you talk about your reasons behind not having children, how you articulate, articulated it so beautifully that that like and you were like i know i'm missing out on having kids but i'm also like people who have kids are also missing out on what i've got and it was just such, such a lovely way that you um and it really helped me and i think that's the the sort of joy of podcasts is that that you don't i mean now through serendipity i get to tell you that but for the most part these people that we help don't don't hear That We we don't hear back from them, but it's, it's, I get really like spiritual with it, but like, we just kind of put it out into the atmosphere and a bunch of people just take, like, they just pick what they need from it. And I Mm. think that's a really beautiful thing. And, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's not like we need more white guys starting podcasts, but, but like, (laughs) <laughs> but like it it, it it can really help people and it can be sort of a, a, a sort of beautiful um, sort of yeah just out, out there in the ether to, to for people to um, cherry pick what they need from
2: yeah and I think it relates back to, to what you were both saying earlier about motivation right the motivation behind a book or a career uh, I think you know a lot of podcasts are there are a lot of fantastic podcasts out there and some of them are you know radio lab or something that's you know highly edited and highly focused and scripted and uh it's it's about very telling a very tight story about a particular subject and there's a you know definitely a place for those but um you know I I think that what I'm doing and and what Anya is doing it's more about creating a space for a particular kind of Person or a particular kind of conversation, you know, that it's almost like a, and I see my podcast almost as like a, a, a nature refuge, you know, like a national park or something, like a, a space that's separate from commerce and ambition and, you know, how to optimize this and, you know, be the best possible that and all this kind of like striving. My podcast is very much about relaxing and accepting and, um, you know, leaving behind shame and uh, judgment and that kind of thing. And I really try to create that kind of a vibe, which is my vibe. It's just where I want to be. So it's like having a party and, you know people are attracted they hear the music and they like that music they come to your party if they don't like the music they don't right so it's it's um it feels like a very natural thing in a way and and i agree with you that it it's interesting how it, like the the effort to affect ratio is very very high so i feel like i put very little effort into it But I hear from people all the time saying, my God, that was so meaningful, you know, when you said this or when you were talking to that guy, I'd never thought. And now I do that for a living, you know, or, you know, you were talking to this person who was in Nepal and and I decided to go to Nepal and it changed my life. And it's it's like the the effects are just amazing, but on my end and your end on your pocket it's really not that hard right i mean we just sit here and we yeah. talk to people and we push a few buttons and it goes out it's
1: i really like that party metaphor because i was actually having a conversation with someone the other day and i was because they've never been to like a gig to see a specific band they've only ever been to festivals where you've got like loads of different people watching all sorts of different things and i was like the vibe you get at a festival is so different because of the people in that crowd, if it's a generic festival, aren't there to see that band. They're just there because that's what's on currently and they just watch it and there's always a good atmosphere because people are just in a good mood. But when you go to a gig to see that band, what everyone in the room Mm. loves that band, it's completely different and the vibe is so much stronger and you just feel it off everyone. It's just this like more magical experience than just being in a room that's just full of everyone else. and
2: part of that is that you can look at anyone in that room and know that you have something in common with them. You love this band enough to leave your house, pay the money, go there. So half your friendship is already done, right? You're already friends, kind of, because you've already got something to talk about and a mutual love, right? And I feel like that's the thing about the podcast. Like, I don't want a huge audience, um, of, you know, I don't want Joe Rogan's audience. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan doesn't even want to hang out with his audience, but I meet the people who listen to my podcast and they're all (laughs) awesome. You know, at least my definition of awesome. They're awesome. They're fantastic people. So I'm really happy to be able to introduce them to each other. I mean, I've, I've done these things for five years now, I think five or six years on the van trip. And I'll do I'll do one in like Boulder. I remember last year I did one in Boulder and these people came and they're like, yeah, we met three years ago when you did this and now we're married, you know? <laughs> and it's like, they met at my thing and now they're married. And it's like, awesome. And people are like, yeah, we met and we've been hiking and we do this and we do that. It's, it's because we're so starved for community. So anything we can do, and I think you're right, podcasting is a really good way of harnessing this technology to create community and um you know a safe space for people although i hate that phrase i don't mean it in a like i won't say something offensive because i say offensive shit all the time (laughs) but it's a place where we can all say offensive shit uh as long as our you know our intentions are clean
0: so to end it on a on a jolly note um all of your podcasts end with the the song uh you're going to die one day. <laughs> um what's the uh what's the reason behind that?
2: Yeah, that song's called Smoke Alarm by Carsey Blanton. And you know, I I think it it I guess it goes back to what we were talking about earlier that I I think the illusion of immortality robs us of the opportunity to make the most of the time we have, right? If, if, you, you, know, if you have a trust fund and you're never going to run out of money, then you can waste it, right? It doesn't matter. You can just buy shit and don't think about it. Throw it away. Who cares? But if you have a limited amount of money, if you know, if you were born with a million dollars in the bank, And you'll never make another dime. And that's all you got. That's all you're ever going to have. Then you're going to pay more attention to what you spend throughout your life. Right? Um, And I feel like that's kind of how it works with time. If you've got the illusion that you'll never get old and die, or you'll never die young, then fuck it. I'll work in the factory for a while. I'll, I'll work in the office, and then I'll retire, and then I'll have fun. Right? when i'm 70 or 65 or something uh and i'll just you know put my nose to the grindstone and just ignore my needs and and my desires um but i love that song because you know the 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 point of the song is hey life's short have fun let's do it um it's it's she wrote it about a guy who was coming on to her in a bar and he was like hey you know, you're going to die one day. So I don't care. What if I kiss you and you turn away? That's all right. I'm going to die one day. So it's, it's, I think it's an empowering thing to uh, always feel death is near. And so the things that scare you, that, you know, you're afraid the woman might reject you or you're afraid you might fail at this or fail at that. Who gives a shit, man? Live as if you're already dead because you will be
0: fucking incredible um chris thank you so much for your time um where can our listeners find more of you
2: uh, my website is that chris and the podcast is there the books are there uh yeah there's a forum there's all sorts of stuff going on there
0: i fucking love you man okay. uh this was incredible so thank you much
2: thank you guys i really enjoyed it